Cool. Good morning. Nice. That was kind of pathetic. That was more. Uh, that was like someone in the far back. Uh, so this morning we're going to be uh, continuing to talk about our, our prayer and our vision for this year, that we'd become a fervent uh, people, fervent in living and speaking the truth and love uh, in our cultural moment. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, up till now this year talking about how Jesus makes all things new, how, how Jesus actually, and the story of him from uh, the beginning of the world uh, to the very end of the world, uh, makes all things new, including our culture. And, and Jesus and his kingdom applies to every part of our, of our lives, of our city, of our world, all of that good, wonderful stuff. And now we're going to turn our attention to kind of that important piece of how do we live uh, the truth? How do we live the truth in love? Uh, I think you might have uh, thought about the way to live the truth is to do the right things and to not do the wrong things, you know, like abstinence and activity. Like those are the two things like that God wants from you. Uh, but I love the Beatitudes, uh, this sermon, uh, this teaching uh, from Jesus. And so I'm just going to read it. And as we do this morning, you'll understand why we're doing that this year uh, in light of our prayer for us as a people. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 18 is where we'll begin. It says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is greater in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven." That is God's word. It's a good word, right? It's a really great word about the truth and life. Uh, the, the Beatitudes come at this amazing moment. Uh, Jesus calls out to disciples. He calls out to these people who are just, you know, doing the fishermen things. Uh, doing really a very mundane task. Like every day, you know, put a net in the water every day, you know, pull it out, see what was in there, uh, take the stuff out that is good to sell. They would sell it, they would eat it. That was their, their life. And then Jesus comes and he says, no, like, follow me. He calls out to them and they follow immediately. It's, it's amazing that uh, we often might imagine ourselves as just being pretty amazing people who figured out the truth, you know, who, who have grown up to understand what's true about the world. Maybe even after that last series, you might think, well, now I really know what's going on in this culture, and I can decipher it perfectly. But, but the beginning of everything is, is Jesus' action in our lives. He interrupts your ordinary life, and he, and he calls us, and we follow pretty Remarkable. And then crowds begin to follow and gather around him because Jesus is doing exciting, good things. He's teaching really good news, the best news they had ever heard. He's actually healing people of all sorts of diseases. People from all over the world, all over the known uh, society are coming to him because he can do something for them and their plight. Uh, just the neediness of the people. You know, it's pretty phenomenal that uh, he begins healing people, and I think in our ordinary life, we might know of one or two people who are afflicted, right? Who have something going on. And so if Jesus showed up, we'd say, oh, that's a really good one hour of work that he might have to do in our lives. But there were crowds streaming day after day to him, because there's that much sickness and brokenness lying beneath the surface, and he heals many, and crowds gather. And then in chapter 5, it says, Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up to a mountain. He saw this huge, vast influence, and he goes up to a mountain. And he sat down. Pretty like God uh, sitting on a rock somewhere. People gathering, but he sits down. The confidence that Jesus has in his kingdom. But then the disciples see him and they come to him. This phrase, it's, uh, I think we might often just sort of skip over. It seems like, oh, that's just a setting sort of thing. Like, you know, Matthew has to get the people there so we can find out the real stuff about the Beatitudes. But I just wonder, when was the last time we we went to Jesus to sit under him and listen to whatever it is that he would want to teach us. 
I think a lot we might go to Jesus and, and want to debate or have a conversation, have a dialogue about things that we don't like about him uh, or about the way he does things. We might come to him with a big wrestling, you know, like, let me see if, if I can arm wrestle him into to what I would like or what I would prefer. Or maybe he just needs to show me his power strong enough to where I will submit to his life. But here, uh, and we can't forget that like, this is the most basic part of discipleship, of following Jesus. They saw him and where he sat down, and they went to him to hear whatever it is he might say. I wonder the, the, the power of that as a person who says they'll follow Jesus. To sit and hear his voice, to hear what he has to say about our lives, about who we are, about how to, how to live the truth. And then verse 2, it says, He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... I wonder what they thought he was about to teach them. You know, like, here's the best strategy for fishing men, right? Like, that was their calling. They were called to be fishers of men. It's a cool, you know, play on words. Uh, They were fishers. They were fishermen. Now they're fishers of men. And so maybe what, what he's about to teach them is the greatest strategy ever concocted to find men and catch them in nets. Uh, or maybe they thought, okay, now he's going to tell us the things to do. Like the actual activities. These are, this is the, the work that needs to be done. We came here, we're on this mountain, it's really pretty, it's going to be like the men's retreat, so there's another plug for that. Uh, and they sit down, uh, and they might have thought, he's going to tell us what to say. He's been going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, this good news about the world being restored through him, and now he's going to tell us the script of things to say. Because what he's talking about is totally different than what the Romans are talking about, even the religious leaders, all of the people today. And they thought, maybe now when they sit down and he begins to teach them, he's going to teach them what to say. But instead... He begins talking about who they are. The first words Jesus utters to teach his disciples are words of identity. Words of reality about who they actually are, not what they will do. And I know, like, even as we taught the last series, many of us were clamoring for, like, hey, Brad and Tripp and Jared, like, when are you just going to tell us what to say and what to do in this cultural moment. Like, what should I be tweeting to people? What should my response be to the brokenness of sexuality? Like, what do I, what do I just say? What do I say in political conversation? How do I turn it on them? How do I make the truth known? Which is great. Like, we're becoming fervent in that. But what's amazing about what Jesus says is not hey, this is what you need to say, he first focuses on who we actually are. Because from who we are flows out all of the, the good stuff. Uh, it's, it's amazing because Jesus will often describe that, uh, and later on in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not about exactly what you do or don't do, it's about what's on the inside. Because out of the inside flows everything, Right? 
have you ever been uh, around someone who's doing something good but angry about it? You know? Like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm, a, I'm an angry house cleaner. So, like, I'm not trying to clean my house to, to make it up to my wife. I'm just cleaning my house because I'm angry. Like, that's, that's how I work. And, it's, and afterwards, when I get done and I say, let's see, the house is clean. For some reason, it doesn't have this amazing effect, right? Of gratitude. It's just, you cleaned everything out of anger. Or have you ever had someone tell you something good, but they, all it was was about themselves or their own kingdom or how awesome they were or how smart they were? Have you ever had someone make the most eloquent argument yet were full of pride. See, Jesus says, no, before we get into all of this, like sharing the gospel stuff, I want to talk about who you actually are and how you live. And then Jesus begins to describe who they are. They're the poor in spirit. They're those who mourn. They're the meek, they're the hungry, the thirsty, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Jesus says, this is who you are, salt and light. The Beatitudes are Jesus' declaration of, of who exactly you are and who you are in this world. He's talking to a group of disciples who would then go on and live out this reality uh, to their deaths, most of them. But he's also talking to us about this, who we are, what it means to be a blessing, what it means to be influential in our culture, what it means to love your neighbors. He says this is how we live the truth. You're the poor, the meek, the hungry. And Jesus describes something that's more about intentionality more than it is about adding stuff to our lives. Like this is, this is the manner, the method, the, the way that you do all of life. Like living, living the truth in love in our cultural moment is more about how we conduct all of our life, how we do the mundane, how we do the fishing and the hunting, but also how we do the market shopping and the business and the work that we do. He's talking about how. He doesn't give a list of, of new tasks or roles or responsibilities. He says, no, this is just who you are in this world. A way of being, a way of living everyday life. But Jesus also says, this is the greatest life. This is abundant life. Jesus is also saying, though, this, this is what the calling of Jesus does to people. It's almost like a, a list of disclaimers after they tell you this latest prescription drug will cure your heart problems, but then it'll kill you. Uh, it's that kind of thing. Even exactly that. Come follow me. It's the greatest thing. Also, it's going to kill you. His list of... This is, this is what the calling of Jesus... This is what it's going to do to you. 
You're going to become poor in spirit. You're going to become a person who mourns. You're going to become meek. You're going to become a peacemaker. You're going to become persecuted. This is who you'll become. This is what it does to people. And for some reason, we don't put that on billboards around town, you know? Follow Jesus. Become poor. Or we don't, it doesn't like find its way into, you know, the Christian radio waves that get beamed out across the world. You know, a catchy tune that somehow says, follow Jesus and you'll be hungry for the rest of your life. Like, it doesn't, we normally don't run to that. But Jesus gives this great disclaimer uh, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarizes it. The call to come and follow is the call to come and die. And Jesus says, this is who you are. This is who everyone who follows Jesus is. Now, a lot of times we might think of the Beatitudes as these are eight different types of people. I just need to become one of them. Uh, That's how I like, you know, personally, I like to read it that way because then I can read it and be like, well, I'm kind of a peacemaker. So the others don't count to me. So you just pick one of these and that's, that's your way of following Jesus. No, there are actually eight qualities of everyone who says, I'm going to follow him. He called me. I answered. I follow. These are the eight qualities of who you are. But this is also how you even come into that calling. Like when Jesus calls us, we become poor and meek and peacemakers and all that. But it's also the very way that we step into the kingdom of God. We become, from that place of poverty in spirit, that there's nothing I could ever do. We look at our own, we examine our own souls, and we say, I'm completely deprived, I'm completely spent. I've tried to conjure up some sort of spiritual fulfillment and goodness out of, my, out of my life, but I'm just completely bankrupt. That's actually the beginning of being called into the kingdom of God. The poor who says, I have nothing. I have no, no items, no, no trinkets, no talents, no skills. I have nothing. Only Only Jesus. To walk in the kingdom of God is to be someone who says, I have zero. I've I've spent it all. I've I've put in all the chips, all all that I am, all that belongs to me is his. Jesus says, that's who you are. Or with mourners, you come into the kingdom saying, I've broken others. I've taken them and, I, and I've shredded it up. I've, I've broken this world. I've, I've lived in this world and I've made all of the purchases and I've done all of the things that have reached uh, to calamitous proportions. And now I mourn at it. I've been broken and I mourn it. The world has been broken And so I weep for it. That's how we all hear the good news and come into the kingdom of God. As the 
Puritans often described having this sorrow for sin. Or as Isaiah said, whenever he saw the glory of God, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and a generation of unclean lips. He's saying, I'm a liar and everybody else is a liar. Our whole culture, everything built around us is just a lie. Jesus said, that's how you, that's how you actually come into the kingdom. That's who you are. A few other examples as I give an overview for this whole thing. He also says we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That a, that a disciple has this new uh, hunger pain and thirstiness that isn't for food or for water or for wine or any of those things, but it's just a deep swell of hunger and thirst for more of the things that are right. To be a disciple is to be someone who just sees and mourns and grieves over everything in the world, but then also says, I just really want the world to be made right. I want the the people around me to be made whole, and you have this constant hunger for that. That's who you are. That's what it means. uh, He also says we are meek. Say, I'm nothing special. Jesus is the only one who is special. It's only by the grace of God that I've been raised to life and to breathe even for a second. I'm not special at all. He is the only glorious one. And even in my raised life, this post-Easter reality, it's Him who lives through me. And it's His power coursing through my veins and through my heart. He is special. Notice uh, what a difference that would make in our cultural moment. People living that way. People, us, the power of a church saying, yes, that is who I really am. What it would mean for a church to be confident in that reality. To say, in everything that I do, in every uh, work environment, every relational dynamic, I am the person that says, I am poor in spirit, Jesus is rich. I am not special, Jesus is special. I have nothing to offer to bring except the good news of who God is. That's who I am. That's all I, that's all I can do for you. The world's filled with uh, the really proud problem solvers. You know, There's about 17 of them running for president, right? They're all like the greatest problem solvers there ever were. It's fascinating. It's like, wow, you guys should form a committee. And some of you are in office, so you could uh, maybe pass something. But no, they were saving their problem solving for the end. Uh, for when they get the power, that's when they're going to do the problem solving. But what would it look like instead for people to say, I have no solutions. I'm not a talent uh, person here. I don't have this wealth of resources to give. I just know that Jesus has all of it. One last thing about these identity statements is that they aren't commands. He doesn't say, become poor. He doesn't say, uh, become thirsty, you know? Become uh, meek, 
He just says that you are. It's not a statement about what you need to become. It's about your identity in this world. But the Beatitudes are are even more than that. They're also about the quality and the essence of following Jesus. That the call is not just come and die, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer also describes. He says discipleship just means joy. Because there's this phrase attached to all of these statements. And this is the big paradox of following Jesus. Blessed and poor. Blessed and persecuted. Synced up together, Jesus sums up the entire essence of a Christian life in that word, blessed. And he says it eight times. And Jesus isn't responding to a sneeze uh, or doing the prerequisite uh, bless his heart, let me criticize him. No, he's just saying, you're the blessed ones of God. The very the fullness of all that God has ever promised to do in the world is complete in you. The pro- the Promises from the very foundation of the created universe is coming true in you. This word, blessed, it's amazing. Uh, In the beginning, here's the story, because we're story people. In the beginning, God created a whole world, and he said, this is good. He created humanity. He said, this this humanity is, is very good. The people, uh, Adam and Eve, had purpose, belonging, uh, relationships. They had everything that they ever needed. And at the center of it all was God walking with them, teaching them, instructing them. In the cool of the day, blessed. In rebellion, Adam and Eve reject blessing, saying for themselves, you know what? I could probably find my own way. What if I got to decide? what a good life is and what a bad life is? What if I could know that I've actually achieved full blessing, you know, a full prosperity, a full abundant life? What if I was the one that chose that? And in that rebellion, uh, you see a whole host of humanity uh, striving to not be blessed by someone else, but to conquer someone else. The story of, of Genesis is pretty wild. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to another couple, Abraham and Sarah. And to Abraham he says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, the whole world, and every nation, every type of people, all the people that are terrible, they're going to be blessed through you and through your family. God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and the rest of the story uh, plays out that they're not people worthy of receiving any kind of blessing at all. They're pretty, uh, you know, unworthy of even, like, scraps at times. You know, like, they they shouldn't be receiving anything at all. They should be lucky that the rain falls on them. 
And yet throughout the whole story, God just says, no, I've decided I'm going to bless you and bless the entire world through you. God's purpose all along is that the world would be blessed. But then, essentially, from that story on, it's just a a whole group of fits and starts with this family, this Abraham family. Uh, His his son is not that great of a guy, probably because his dad was a screw-up, like most of our dads, probably. Uh, And then uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, has two sons. Uh, They're pretty terrible with each other. Uh, Jacob ends up having tons of children with uh, many different people. Uh, He barters for women uh, and has children. He has these sons that grow up to uh, beat up and sell one into slavery. You know, blessed people. (laughs) To be a blessing. They're blessing the whole world by throwing others into slavery. And they're in slavery themselves generations later, and for generations. All the while, there's still this promise that God's going to bless the whole world through them. Like the, the, the essence of the garden coming back. Throughout the, the kingdom of Israel, there's simply uh, good kings and bad kings, but never that moment where you say, we're almost at that moment, right? Like before this whole rebellion thing started. We're almost blessed. In fact, most of the time it was prophets saying, return back to what you were called to do. Come back and be the blessing you were called to be. But often they just refused. He said, stop abandoning, the prophets would say. This self-seeking desire. Let God simply bless you. But they wouldn't. They never heard that. And then they began to say, someone's going to come. Uh, from the root of Jesse. From, from this family, someone's coming and he's going to be a blessing and through him, the whole world will be blessed. And it's with that stuff going on in the background that then Jesus turns to this group of people who were just fishermen days ago or tax collectors or uh, you know, mercenaries and militaries, and he just turns to them on this hillside and he says, you're blessed. The fulfillment of all the story. The one who came, who is the blessed one of God, he turns to us and he says, you are now blessed. You've received everything that was long ago expected. The reality of of new creation is alive in you. You are the blessed ones of God. And just as I began to say, like, how often do we sit next to Jesus and say, Jesus, say whatever you want to me. This is what he says to you. You're blessed. Now, some of us are shrugging, not full shrugs, as I look around, some people are sitting up more. Some people are slouching. Um, I'm one of the slouchers. But some of us are shrugging saying, that's neat. What does that mean that I'm blessed one of God? You know, like, what does that, 
What does that have to do with my life? Does that mean more money? But you just said I'm poor in spirit. Blessed means that you've been given a treasure that you didn't earn. We're a whole bunch of Abrahams and Sarahs in this room. We didn't earn this treasure, but also the treasure can't be taken away. You're blessed. And this treasure that you've been given is the healing of all peoples. You, by the grace of God, have become a co-conspirer in the restoring of all things. Each beatitude kind of answers that question of, so what that I'm blessed? You know, I can imagine these first disciples sitting there on some stony ground. And this guy that they've left, you know, everything for is telling them they're blessed. The question had to have been, how? How am I blessed? This is the paradox of it all. To the first, he says, you have the kingdom. Everything broken and destroyed, made right. The kingdom of God is where God rules, where he reigns, where he gets what he wants, and he gets to be where he wants. And he says, that's given to you. That's blessing. He says, comfort. As you weep and as you mourn for the brokenness of your own life and the brokenness over our city, God is with you. Comfort, this language that that God comes and is side by side with you. For you. Not against you, but just with, in your presence, with you. That is blessing. And if you want something else, uh, you're going to have to find or create a different religion. Because that is the, the, the chief reward of all Christianity. If it doesn't do anything for you, uh, I, don't, I don't know what will. He also says that you'll get the earth, a place, a home, the land. You're blessed. You have a place. Satisfaction, he says, You'll receive in abundance all that is required for a full life. You hunger and you thirst for for the good things. God gives you to your full satisfaction. You will receive mercy. As a room full of Abraham and Sarah's, you don't get what you deserve, but you just keep getting pushed more and more into the very banquet of God. You get to look in on what he does. You get to participate in his mission. You get to see people receive mercy. He says you get to see God. You'll have a vision for who he actually is. You will know him. You will know the living God who created the heavens and the earth. Created the cosmos. You will know him. You'll be Not just someone who sees God, but you'll be called a children of God, a child of God, part of a family with God the Father sitting at that head of the table saying, come and feast. 
And then he ends again with the kingdom. Where God is and where God reigns, this is blessing. This is what it means to be a blessed people. The presence of God. Discipleship, following Jesus, means joy. And the gospel is this means of grace. That, that we were uh, doing our own thing. You know? Maybe we're doing what our parents told us to do. Like, uh, like these four gentlemen who were working for their dad. Doing what their dad did. Doing what his dad did. Maybe you're just doing that. The expectations of your parents. Or you're doing your own thing entirely where, you know, like, I'm moving to L.A. and I'm going to do my own dream. Uh, that's most of us, right? That's right, my day. <laughs> but your whole mundane life has been interrupted. The gospel begins with an interruption of your own status quo. And seeing the glory of Jesus on a cross and raised from the dead, you've said, I am poor. I have nothing. You're the most glorious. You were at once, after seeing Jesus and hearing him say, follow me, you became at once and forever both poor and blessed. This is the response. This is who we are in this world. But Jesus also, it's, there's this great dynamic of the Beatitudes. He's talking to the disciples, but there's these crowds of people who are just listening in. And maybe you're one of those people. Just watching this interchange between disciples and Jesus. And if that's you, just understand this reality. Jesus is calling you into a life you were created for. I think a lot of times we read the, the story of the beginning of Adam and Eve fully dependent on God and them just you know, grabbing fruit and vegetables from every tree and they didn't earn it. And we look at the garden and we say, that doesn't sound like good news to me. I'd like to be in a garden that I've made. You know, I would like to do all of the work to create my own thing. It sounds to you maybe like the worst possible life to be fully dependent on someone besides yourself. And for everything that you've received to not be your own earning, but just a grace from God. That even applies to uh, how we want to get well like emotionally or spiritually. I want to get well emotionally because I did the work. I figured it out. I want to get well uh, in my family by, you know, working the dynamics out. But the grace of God is, I've created a whole life for you that's my presence and me alone. And that's how you come into the kingdom of God. That's how you walk the kingdom of God. That's how you die and fully enter the kingdom of God. A life with Him, that's how He gets it.
to come to Jesus, how do you do that? You actually just acknowledge that I am actually spiritually bankrupt and poor. I've got nothing. That's how we all enter the kingdom of God and enter in that glorious like paradox of having nothing but receiving everything, that we are the blessed ones of God. That's good news, right? By his wounds we're healed, right? He turns our, our mourning into dancing. He turns our, uh, our grief into joy. He turns our hunger into an abundance of like stomach pains I've been given so much but it's so much of him. I'm just going to pray for us to desire that, and then we'll share celebrations as we do on the first Sunday of the month. And and even as I pray, you can begin thinking, because I'm going to ask you to share, how have you seen that blessing in your life these last few weeks or months? Jesus, we come to you wanting to remember who we are, Would you remind us of who you are? Uh, Jesus, I pray that we would be uh, broken but built up. Uh, I pray that you would uh, give us a a vision and a hunger for righteousness, that you would uh, create in us an identity that's completely built on who you are and your kingdom. Help us to see. Help us to acknowledge Yeah, Jesus, I pray that you would, as a church, or within our church, that you would uh, make us uh, the type of people uh, that adore you and are willing to see all that we have as nothing compared to knowing you. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Amen.